Anything But Square is the Fed Square podcast, an eclectic series of interviews, discussions, and presentations covering some of the most fascinating and relevant parts of life in Melbourne. This is our very first episode, and to kick it off, we thought we'd start with something special to us and important to the times we live in. Zach Bush's Breathe Your Biome, presented by Yoast Backer. Breathe Your Biome covers the impact industrial farming, chemical pesticides, the pharmaceutical industry, and even errant Western medical practices have had on both human and planetary health. This is an episode in two parts. It was a true pleasure to host such luminary individuals as Zach Bush and Joost Becker. Both are committed wholesale to the preservation and improvement of the environment we live in. We hope you enjoy this recording of Zach's presentation in our magnificent Deacon Edge Theatre. Make yourself a cuppa and enjoy. Thanks to everyone for coming. Um, why am I so ex- excited to uh, hear Zach speak? And how did we connect? Well, something very simple connected us. It's called soil. I'm passionate about soil and so is he. So you'll hear Zach's story and understand why he's so passionate about that. something that seems so simple. But I'll tell you my story. It started when I was a kid in Holland and with my dad. And dad was the kind of guy that pointed out the most obscure things. You know, it might be a shadow on a tree or the way birds flew or the pattern of a bird, bird's flight path or... You know, but one thing that really resonated with me was uh, soil. And I remember there was a plough, a huge plough being pulled, and there were hundreds of seagulls following this plough. And I said, why are they following the plough? And he said, well, look at the pink tinge on the soil. And it was like glass. You could see it, you know, um, the sun was reflecting off it. And he said, that's all worms. When there's lots of worms, farmers are happy. And that was it. That's kind of where he left it. And about 15 years later, I'm in Nepal uh, trekking and I see a plough being pulled and lots of birds following this plough. And I thought, this is a, I haven't seen this since I was a kid back in Holland or the Netherlands as it's supposed to be called today. And uh, I remember thinking, these are the happiest, kindest people I've ever met and I understood what my dad meant. The soils were filled and loaded with worms and they were harvesting and growing all their own food and they were really the happiest people that I'd ever met. In 2008, I did the greenhouse right here at Fed Square where we made 100 tonnes of soil from organic waste and put it on top of this building and I wanted to show people what's possible if we change the way we build. And I said to a journalist, Amory Kiley, um, I, I believe that happiness and human well-being is because of soil. And I also believe that surrounding yourself with a growing system, with a food system, was integral to being happy. And we've spent the last two million, two million plus years immersed in our food system, and we've spent the last 100 years trying to remove ourselves from it. And I think uh, it's obvious that something radical needs to change. So it's incredibly exciting for me to see that Zach's come all the way out to Melbourne. We've tried for a long time to get a little window of space that he could actually make the trip over, so it's incredibly exciting. But I wanted to say as well that for over 20 years I've been in this space and I'm a creative person and obsessed with sustainability and and these issues, and I've never, ever experienced the momentum that exists today. There's a true global movement towards doing things differently, towards making, making things better, And 
it's, it, it really inspires me and I'm incredibly excited at the moment. I think the next 10 years are going to be this radical change and I think it's, it's in a positive way. And it won't just be positive for us, it's going to be positive for all living creatures on earth. Anyway, I welcome Zach Bush. Oh my gosh, this is such an honor to be here. Uh, I would like to say that Sydney gets way too much press. <laughs> Melbourne has got it going on here. Love your city, love your energy. And we're going to dive right into that. So before I talk, you guys are going to pour the energy into this room because we have some big work to do in the world. And most of you are engaged in that work in some way or another, maybe absolutely intentionally and and very much sensing your purpose. And some of you not even aware of how much you're affecting change in the world around these subjects we're going to touch on. So to all meet in the same space, we're going to close our eyes, put your feet on the ground in front of you, uncross your legs. We're going to get grounded. Close your eyes, and we're just going to take like four deep breaths together. Let it all the way out. Wiggle your toes a little bit and take another one. Wiggle those toes in a little harder because we're on a tiny little rock in the middle of space and we're hurling through space at some insane speed that's too hard for us to wrap our head around. And we're spiraling through a solar system that's spiraling through a distant galaxy in a far-flung area of the universe. And so we better hold on to that rock pretty good. We're here together to change the future. And it's so possible when you have this much energy in a room to focus attention and shift the pattern. You just keep your eyes closed for the next two hours and you'll be happy. (laughs) We're here to talk about the future of the world because we're in the midst of the most cataclysmic event that humanity has ever been in. And I'm a huge passionate fan of war history. I think it's interesting that you can map the entire human history for our wars. Uh, We do this so repetitively that it's rare to find a generation in human history that's not fighting a war on some front, on some piece of soil, over some thing. And I love studying war because it reminds me that we have survived so much. And it's easy to get depressed about where we're at and and a sense of hopelessness can set in. And so I love watching the World War II documentaries, which I did on the way here and everything else, just to remind myself of how horrific we have been to one another in the past. And as we've turned that warlike attention out towards the world around us, towards the plant life, the animal life, the soil life around us, that same warlike mentality is, is now being poured out on all of life on, the, on Mother Earth. And you can feel humanity marching towards a shift. And as a physician, I began in a very hopeful way, as every medical student and doctor becomes, hopeful that I was going to be equipped with a toolbox that was going to affect massive change in the lives of my patients and bring you know, a relief to suffering, give a sense of hope. 
the toolbox continued to fail and fail on so many fronts as I continued to practice as a physician and went into deeper and deeper education, subspecialized a few times. And my last subspecialty of hospice and palliative care was when I started to really break open the doors on the possibility of where we are as humanity. Because in the moments of taking a patient into a diagnosis of terminal cancer or terminal neurologic disorders or whatever it was, there was a huge shift that would happen in these patients who had been declining in function and awareness and and, uh, quality of life for years and years. And then suddenly you get to that hospice moment where you say, you've got a few months to live. There's nothing left in the toolbox and Western medicine can offer you, so it's time to get your get your house in order, get your life in order, do what you want to do and and make the most of every single day. And the person would wake up and they would go do stuff. They would engage their families and they would engage life in a different way than they had been able to when they were so distracted by the to-do list of medicine, the to-do list of taking their drugs and getting the pharmacy and taking care of their insurance and everything else. You guys have a little bit easier go in Melbourne than we do in the States with that kind of thing. But it is amazing how consumptive the chronic disease management has become that we forget to live. And so hospice can be a powerful time for, for people because we stop all their medications and we say, you know, we're just here for quality of life. You'll be on the meds that'll keep you comfortable, but otherwise live big and be off the meds. And my favorite thing to do in, as a hospice doctor is twofold. Number one, being at the bedside as a patient rebirths. We mistermed this thing, death. It is so far from an end point. When you see an individual really pass through that veil and sometimes come back and forth a few times and then ultimately make that ultimate transition and rebirth, there is such extreme beauty in it. And you learn so much about what it it means to be alive in watching that rebirth happen to the other side of whatever veil we're hidden behind. And so that's one of the most beautiful things. But the other really delightful thing to do as a hospice doctor is discharge people from hospice because you realize, oh, wait, I was wrong. You got way more than three months to live. You're suddenly doing great. And that happens relatively often when you stop all the medications. Suddenly they wake back up, energy improves, their muscle aches go away, and you find out you were simply... You put a 12-drug regimen on hospice, not a human being. You stop all the meds, and suddenly they wake up and go. So I think that's the point we're at as humanity now, as we are in our hospice moment. And so as I go through this next couple slides, I want you to have a sense of hope in that, and that it's going to focus us as a species to either rebirth into something totally transformed, a light energy on the other side of this physical veil, or we're going to wake up from the drug-like stupor that we've been in, in this chemical environment we've been steeped in for hundreds of years, and especially in the last few decades. So as depressing as this might sound in the next few minutes, I want you to keep grounding those toes in, cling on to Mother Earth, and let's look for the hope of how we can transform through these numbers. Autism now is is one of the biggest focuses for me and my team because uh, it affects the children in such a powerful way. And in the United States, we've now hit numbers in 1 in 36 children with autism. Autism was certainly a condition I had never heard of growing up. I certainly knew nobody in my school of 2000 in my high school that had autism. It was an unknown thing in the 1970s and 80s. 
Suddenly in the 1990s, it started to be prevalent enough that it started getting talked about in my medical school, that there was some sort of trend going on, and then by the 2000s, it was clear we were going to have a significant problem on our hands. Attention deficit kind of cropped up at the same point as a new diagnosis. Uh, This was kind of mid-1990s where suddenly this started to be kind of a fad diagnosis in college campuses and in elementary schools alike. And we'd throw these kids on on a drug that is similar to speed. So it's Adderall or Ritalin, and these are adrenaline drugs that rev up the fight-or-flight state in these kids. And that's important because when you are in a fight-or-flight state, you get really focused. And so you know what their threat is and you know how you're going to respond to that threat. In this case, we put children on speed so that they can focus really well on a multiple-choice test. It's a little bit of an odd decision, perhaps. And it's a little bit unfortunate because when you put somebody into a fight-or-flight state, when they go to focus, to achieve that, they have to shut down their creative aspects of their brain. And so what happens to a species when it starts to put its children on drugs that shut down their sense of creativity and their outside-the-box thinking, especially at the point where we've never needed more outside-the-box thinking than we do today? Asthma has now hit 1 in 10 kids in rural Australia here. It's some of the highest in the industrialized world at 1 in 8 children with asthma. What happens when our kids can neither be creative and have a hard time breathing just to get through a day? If you can't catch your breath and you can't catch that creative moment, do you start to give up hope? Do you start to lose focus on why you're here? Allergies to our environment, food allergies, environmental allergies, and the like, now one in four children that can't tolerate being human on planet Earth. They have hives. They have reactive immune systems that are telling them that the whole world is attacking. Everything is against them. And so they can't tolerate the environment they live in. Diabetes now, one in four adults in the United States and all of the Western countries now fast on our heels. But recent data that's starting to sneak out of China suggests that we may have an even bigger crisis in that massive population as the Western diet continues to spread and chemical industry continues to infiltrate that Chinese peoples, we start to see this rise in diabetes now. We have concerns that we may have one in three Chinese today in the adult state with prediabetes or diabetes, and the vast majority of those undiagnosed because they actually don't have a primary care system that would be similar to what we have in Western nations. They have a very excellent tertiary care system, but preventive health hasn't really risen to its attention, so those population statistics are probably grossly underestimated. Allergies, one in four. Diabetes, one in four. And the numbers keep getting more extreme. And so at the adult state now, obesity takes up so much of the bandwidth of what we talk about. We've got 70% of males in Australia now that are overweight. And that is an extraordinary statistic when you start to think about uh, the impacts on chronic disease just from that one condition. So even if none of the other ones on the list were there, this one is a big enough burden to not only healthcare care, but also productivity dropping when we go into the overweight and obese states. All of the chronic conditions tend to start to wear down. And one of those is major depression that really correlates a lot with the metabolic changes that happen with obesity and overweight status. And so we can see now one in two adults with major depression over the course of their lifetime, 
that's extraordinary in not just its number, but also in the trajectory at which we've gotten there. Evidence-based medicine and population statistics as we think of them today was really created by Freud and his colleagues around the turn of the 20th century. And so in 1900, they studied the population prevalence of major depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, and these kinds of conditions to a very accurate degree, not just in, in uh, the, the West uh, of Europe and the U.S., but also in some of the developing world as well. And in those Western and developed world, we knew that there was one in 100 with major depression at that time. So over one short century, we went from one in 100 adults with depression to one in two. If you've ever had major depression, it can perhaps be best categorized as hopelessness and a sense of futility. And so as our adults hit this wall of futility and hopelessness, as our children lose creativity, you start to understand why we consume in the fashion that we do. Why are we so glued to Instagram and Facebook and all of these other modalities? Yes, they are drug-like in their quality. They were developed, obviously, for that purpose of being that addictive quality to them. But I'm quite confident we would not have seen the same addiction process if we didn't have this level of neurologic collapse in our children and adults. We are begging at the frontal lobe for some stimulation, some sort of pleasure, when we have this prevalence of chronic disease, especially of the mood disorders. I keep hitting the wrong button there. I apologize. The biggest statistic change in in the last 10 years has been the final one on the list, which is cancer. Cancer at one in two males now in Western countries led by the United States uh, and one in three females. And this number is kind of startling because it doesn't even count skin cancer. So these are solid organ tumors or bloodstream or bone marrow-based cancers that are affecting the population. And so at this rate of, of disease, we start to get a sense of where are we at. So that's a snapshot of where we are today. But if we look at the trajectory of how we've gotten there, we get to see a real sense of where we've come from and where we're going. This curve shows you just the curve for autism, the top one on the, on the list. In 1975, one in 5,000 children had a diagnosis of, of autism. By 2012, we saw one in 118 with, with autism, and we're starting to discuss in medical environments the possibility that we were seeing a true epidemic of this neurologic injury to children under the ages of three. So these young children, initially on a normal trajectory, normal milestones that they're hitting, they, they can make eye contact, and they're crawling, and they start to walk, and they're saying their first words, and they can say mom and dad, and they're telling their favorite food. And then suddenly at 18 or 20 months, they spike a fever. They go kind of listless. They can no longer make eye contact. They lose all their verbal skills. And two years and five years and seven years later, they haven't recovered any of that. And they're emotionally completely overwhelmed with sensory overwhelm, such that it's not too unusual that you find a child who has to hit his head against a crib four to five hours a day to induce enough discomfort or pain to cause the brain to focus so that it's not overwhelmed by a cacophony of sensory overload. 
there was a lot of denial going on in, in my industry in 2012 saying, well, maybe we just recognize this condition more. And it was around in 1975, but we just didn't have it defined as a diagnosis. And so maybe it's not really an epidemic. Maybe we're just doing a better job of screening for it or diagnosing it. That may have been a reasonable argument if, in fact, in the next three years, we didn't double it again. And so by 2014, 2015, we were at 1 in, one in 50, 1 in 46 kids. And then you fast forward another 18 months and they're at 1 in 36 kids. And that's old statistics still. That's 2017. We haven't seen 2018 numbers yet. So it certainly would suggest that in the last six or eight years, we've seen the fastest rates of growth of autism and neurologic injury in children that has ever been witnessed in our history as humans. And as we just take a step back further, and I start to really sit in my clinic with families of autistic children now on a routine basis, I'll tell you who didn't miss this in 1975 was mothers. There is no way moms of 1975 missed a child suddenly losing all their verbal skills, can't make eye contact, and is mostly overwhelmed and hitting their, kid, their head against the crib. I can totally accept that the medical industry as a whole missed this, didn't know it was coming, blah, blah, blah. Mothers did not miss this in 1975. We have a true vertical dilemma going on here. And if we mark out the trajectory we're currently on, in the United States, we're going to hit one in three children with an autism spectrum disorder by 2035. That's maybe two more U.S. presidents that will sit up there while we cruise to one in three children with autism. One in three children with autism, if that was the only condition we were dealing with as a nation, that will bankrupt us. We don't have a medical system or a, a, a GDP in our nation that can handle that level of weight of chronic disease management. But then you have to take into consideration that it usually takes not just mom, dad, also aunts, uncles, and grandma and granddad all pitching in to try to provide care for that child. And so you have lost productivity in two or three generations to support that one child. And so we are on course to collapse our already collapsing empire in the United States. And so perhaps Australia will be the next to rise. Uh, these empires have risen and fallen since the beginning of mankind. But it's very rare that you see an empire fall under the weight of chronic disease. I would argue that it's really never been seen. And so we have a situation where we are losing productivity for just that one condition. We will bankrupt our nation for that one condition. But it's going to be further burdened by the reality that we're going to see somewhere around 60 to 70% of adults with cancer at the same time that we see those children at that rate. I picked this graph because it's one generation. We map one generation by 25 years. 1990 to, to 2015 is this map. And during that time, we roughly doubled our cancer rates in the United States. That's pertinent, A, because you can see that, especially in males, that line, line starting to get steeper and steeper in its curve, no longer linear, but starting to go into that autism-like curve where you see that logarithmic growth of the cancer pattern. That's concerning because it suggests that by the time we hit 2020 numbers and see 2025 come on, we could see uh, an ever-accelerating rate of cancer in the population. But it's also concerning because as a, a previous chemotherapy development research and development researcher at the University of Virginia, 
I was really steeped in, in the understanding of the pathophysiology of cancer. How does cancer happen in the human body? And interestingly, it's really steeped in the reality of genetics still. We think of cancer as the most common genetic disease. It takes all these genetic injuries in a human cell before you can get cancer. We're told that the average human cancer has around 20,000 unrepaired genetic injuries before it can become a cancer cell. So we're just steeped in this genetic perspective on cancer. But if this was a genetic condition that we were passing on this vulnerability of cancer from generation to generation, it would be absolutely impossible for in a single generation for us to double our rates of cancer. And so this is really the first time that we have stone-cold evidence that cancer is an environmental condition. It has to be an environmental condition to be able to achieve these population statistics. And so that's exciting as much as it is devastating to see what we've done. It's exciting because we can change environments. And we have to do it soon. I've been preaching those numbers for the last eight years around the world and thought I really had a good grasp on this, see kids in my clinic with cancer, blah, blah, blah. But then I got invited down to MD Anderson at Texas Children's Hospital this past year, and it was the first time I'd seen this hospital system. And it's the largest cancer center in, in the United States and probably the world. But it's daunting because what you're seeing here from left to right is Texas Children's Hospital, Texas Children's Hospital, and then across the street, Texas Children's Hospital and Texas Children's Hospital. And then that weird double tower that looks like something out of Mumbai or something in the background is their projected double tower that will also be Texas Children's Hospital. We have built a literal city for kids with cancer. It takes so much time to walk through these hallways, and on on the way through, you really get a sense of what we've actually done, the devastation that we've actually caused here. These kids, for all of the, the travesty that we're putting them through at such young ages, have these huge smiles over and over again. They don't seem to have a victim attitude, so there's a lot to be learned there. As human species, we have to come to terms with that vertical responsibility and the accountability that we have for what we've done. But we we should learn from these children that if we approach this from a a standpoint of a victim or a guilt kind of paradigm, we'll fail. We can't change fast enough. Like these children, we're going to have to find an emotional freedom in the reality that we're in and say, let's just transform. Of course we mucked the whole thing up. Of course we did it all wrong. Of course that was a whole... We didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. We didn't do that on purpose. And if we did, for goodness sakes, we can change that mindset. We can change the way that we're going to go into the trajectory for the future. And so that's what I think we can learn from these children. But as a chemotherapy researcher, I was a little bit amazed to walk through these hallways and see so many chemotherapy poles hanging drugs that haven't innovated since the 1970s. These kids are still being treated with these old drugs. Here we are, we think we're like the most advanced medical system in the world, and we think we're you know, pouring all these literally hundreds of billions of dollars into medical research and care for kids and adults with cancer, and yet we really have failed to innovate. The main innovation that I saw walking the halls of the cancer centers for the children was innovation around the chemotherapy poles. We have Kermit the Frog chemo poles, we have wagon chemo poles, we have like all of these ways that we've made it feel like Disneyland to get chemotherapy. 
Can you get a sense of the ludicrousness? It's like you're stuck in a really bad dream version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or something, which I always felt like was kind of a bad dream for my take, but maybe I just didn't understand the movie. 1.2% of children in the United States had a chronic disease in the 1960s. Today, in the Medicaid uh, you know, universal screenings that are done, we're seeing 52% of children with a chronic disease or disorder in the U.S., such a short period of time. And we look at this, and of course, cancer is the minority of those chronic diseases. Most of it is in those other lists that we had, the asthmas, the allergies, the eczema, the skin conditions, the autoimmune conditions, and go on down the list. 52% of children by the time they're 17 faced with a chronic disorder or disease, the vast majority of whom will carry that through the rest of their life. You can see why in the United States our health care crisis continues to mount. You can't keep up with this level of disease because it compounds on you every year that goes by. But for better or worse, no species has ever gone extinct for a chronic disease. And so as expensive as it might get, it's not going to kill us. If it does kill us, it won't be early enough that we'll stop procreating. But this next slide, as we move away from chronic disease and start to look at the survival of our species, we, we start to bring into focus the possibility of our actual extinction. In Western developed countries across the world, uh, our sperm counts have dropped by 52 to 57% since 1970. And the last numbers that we really have are 2010, so I am not looking forward to seeing the numbers from 2020 when they finally get counted. But one in three males is now infertile by sperm count with less than 15 million sperm per milliliter. One in three males in Western countries is now infertile. And I'm astonished in many ways by United States politics, global politics. None of it makes too much sense. But you would think that at some point when you have got 150 people deciding they're going to run for president, one of them would take up the call of our species is going extinct. We have a chronic disease epidemic that's never been seen before. Some of these numbers would be tossed around, and yet they get glossed over or they never get addressed at all. I think we would startle most presidential candidates around the world with these numbers. The presidents of these nations do not realize the, the level of the boil that, that they're in. The proverbial frog is unawares of the boiling state. And so we are here at the, the tipping point of our species. And so it's extremely exciting for me to be in a room like this because you guys are actually already weaving a story and weaving a path for our species to do the world differently than we've done it before. If you've been keeping up with the concept of the microbiome, you know that the bacteria around us and within us are starting to be realized as the ground zero, really, if you will, of the chronic disease epidemic. Every condition known on the slides that we've shown here already, as well as any other that you can think of, any chronic disease condition is now starting to be linked back to changes first in the microbiome. And as you get dysfunction within the the ecosystem of the human body, you start to get chronic disease. And it's gotten very specific. Bizarrely, if you're missing a specific species of bacteria, you'll be at risk for colon cancer. Another specific species of bacteria lost its breast cancer or prostate cancer, and it goes on down the list. And so this was starting to come out in 2005, 2010. I'm making chemotherapy. 
And starting to come to terms with nothing in the model of cancer as I understood it was fitting the microbiome into it. We had never understood human cancer in the context of bacteria and fungi. It didn't make any sense that those could be connected in any shape or form. And so I want to dive in a little bit because many of you are starting to embrace the concept of good soil on your farms and good soil in your gut. And many of you are on probiotics, I think. And this whole kind of concept of I need good bacteria is starting to take a hold. But we need to blow up that paradigm, too, because bacteria is the very tip of the iceberg, really, of the microbiome as we understand it. The microbiome is now put into context, I think, best in the genetics world. And so let's take a look at the human genome for a moment to come to understand this together. We are one species, Homo sapiens sapiens. I love it that we called ourselves sapiens twice because that means wise one, right? So we are the vertical wise, wise ones. And we had to name ourselves twice that because we kind of differentiated around 200,000 years ago from some other Homo sapien line that, you know, all of us kind of coming out of some sort of pre-Homo sapien, maybe Neanderthal line or whatever it is. But we show up 200,000 years ago in the fossil record as Homo sapiens sapiens. And we, and we, we just felt like we were this pinnacle of ecology. We were this evolutionary phenomenon. We're the most intelligent species that ever been on the earth. We're this brilliant, complex machine capable of adapting to any environment on the planet. And so when we went to decode the human genome in the 1990s, I was told as kind of the first generation of med students coming through this era that we were going to be the most empowered physicians on the on the planet and in the history of our species. We would be able to, by 2005, we thought we were going to be able to do personalized medicine, which would be, we'd take a swab of your cheek, we'd run your genome, we'd tell you exactly what diseases you were at risk for and exactly what drugs would be best for you and your genetics, and we were going to just map this out perfectly. And we knew the task was going to be big because we had 280,000 proteins made from all of these genes in our genome that we were handed from mom and dad. And so it was going to be a big task to find the 280,000 genes and all this. And so we thought it was going to take us like 20 years. And then five years later, we suddenly decoded the whole human genome. And it was the first project that's ever been finished way earlier than expected in human history. 20,000 genes were found. We thought we were looking for 280,000 genes. We only found 20,000 genes. This was dismal news for the Homo sapiens sapiens because we had already decoded the fruit fly that had 13,000 genes. And we just thought we were going to be a little better than the fruit fly, than 20,000 genes. And we had also decoded the, the flea, that amazing little bug that can jump 40 times its height. That little flea has 30,000 genes. So we found out that our species fell somewhere roughly between a fruit fly and a flea, and frankly, a little closer to the fruit fly. And that was really frustrating news on many fronts, most of all because we didn't now understand what the DNA was. We thought the DNA was the template of life. We thought that the human DNA that we received from mom and dad made the human body what it was. You were going to pick blue eyes, you were going to have brown eyes, you're going to go on to have you know, this kind of body weight, and you'll go on to have this kind of IQ, and you'll go on to have these cancers or these diseases in the future. We thought that was all programmed into the genome. 
But if we only had 20,000 genes that could make over 280,000 proteins, it just blew our whole concept of genomics out of the water. And this got downplayed. And so nobody really talked about it. Everybody was like, okay, 20,000 genes, how to come to terms with that. And quietly we then invented this new science of epigenetics, which was that the environment could somehow turn on and off genes by methylating the surface of the, the DNA and we started to say, okay, we're pretty plastic. We can actually change a little bit. The environment can shape us, and we can do this or that. But it still wasn't enough to really tell the whole story. And so now we're starting to come to terms with not only are we very plastic through this environment of swapping information around the genes, it's the other part of the genome that we have been disregarding that actually is the big secret. Those 20,000 genes, it turns out, only count codes for one and a half percent of all of the DNA in your body. And so we decided that the other 98.5 percent of your DNA was junk. And so we called it junk DNA. You can, to this day, read a bunch of papers coming out of Harvard and the great schools this year on junk DNA, because clearly when you look around nature, it's almost overwhelming amount of junk. It's just waste everywhere, right? Well, we do this when we don't understand things. The physicists do the same thing, right? They measure, measure all the mass in the universe, and they say, well, we can only find about 4% of it, and so we'll call the other 96% of the universe dark matter, and we'll assign it a constant, and we don't know what that is, but we'll shape the whole universe out of the 4% that we can see, and we'll say, this is all of the known things, and don't ask any questions. We have got it figured out because we got the 4%. And if you ask any doctor, they're going to tell you, oh, you have an MTHFR gene defect, so you must have have fatigue because you have that gene defect, because they keep thinking that those 20,000 genes are what you are, when in fact that's 1.5% of you. The 98.5% of you that is junk DNA, it turns out, is doing all the magic. That junk DNA is doing something called microRNA. And so these microRNA are tiny little signals that come off of the junk DNA to tell the environment what each cell is experiencing and what genes it's needing to turn on and what proteins it needs to make right now. And so the microRNA is this massive genomic signaling system to tell you what's happening in your body. And it's very exciting because the microRNA are not limited to the cell. It leaves the cell and starts to travel. So much so that it actually gets into our bloodstream and then our sweat and in our urine and in our stool. It actually exudes outside of us. Over the two hours together tonight, I will spew my microRNA all over this room. And you thought you were afraid of coronavirus. Fear this. My microRNA right now is airborne in this room, as is the microRNA coming from everybody breathing around you. And you guys are informing one another what body you built today. What genes have turned on today? What repair have you done today? What regenerative capacity have you done today? What inspiration have you felt today? What creative thought has driven you to joy today? What kiss has made you tingle all over your body? What hug has made you feel nurtured? What depression has turned off your mind today? What hopelessness has set in? The patterns are spoken in this invisible world of the microRNA around you. We are shaping each other. Have you ever met two people who have been married for 60 or 70 years? Who do they look like? Do they look a little like each other? Isn't that interesting? 
even more bizarre because this goes beyond the species limits. Have you ever met somebody and their dog? (laughs) Next time you go to pick out the puppy, take in consideration your own faults and maybe the places you need to be augmented. And maybe also take into consideration which dominant features probably don't need further augmentation. (laughs) That dog is going to shape you so much because it's the only socially acceptable species that's allowed to lick its butt and then jump in people's faces and lick. (laughs) Fecal transplant was invented by dogs. Powerful, powerful therapeutic tool. We've shown all these years that having a companion animal, especially a dog in the house, is an improved health and longevity of the individual. So we made up all these BS stories about, oh, yeah, it makes you feel better and you feel loved and you feel nurtured. No, you just have good microbiome, baby. It's just like you're getting that constant reinforcement because the dog is out there in the backyard digging a hole and then licking you in the face, runs the dog park, and how do they even greet each other? Whoop! They sniff each other's butts. That's so brilliant. You know exactly what they've had for, to eat for the last four days. You don't have to talk about the restaurants. You'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 brothel for sure on that one. You've got this all figured out. And so you've got this amazing reality that the microbiome is, is speaking what's happening within us in the same way, perhaps, that we speak to one another in the genes. And so let's take a look for a moment at the spectrum of genes around us. We now are coming to terms with the fact that 30,000 species is probably a pretty conservative estimate at this point as to the microbiome at the bacterial level that's in and around the human body and experience, soils, etc. 30,000 species of bacteria have over 2 million genes compared to your 20,000. And so you are logarithmically outpaced by the genes. But then again, imagine all of the junk DNA behind those genes. And that junk DNA able to leave that bacteria and get into your bloodstream. It's now recognized that 15 to 20% of the microRNA in your bloodstream right now is non-human. It's bacterial. The bacteria are telling you whether they're stressed or thriving, happy or not, threatened or supported diversifying or destroyed, they're sending out stress signals or signals of nurture. And your genome is responding to the bacterial environment. It changes your perspective on something like an antibiotic. It's interesting now to find out in some recent studies that one course of antibiotics for a UTI or bronchitis or sinusitis, you show up at your doctor's office, you get that one prescription, they're like, you know, they listen to you for maybe three minutes max, slightly distracted because they have to type in what they think is wrong with you, and they slap that prescription down, say, yeah, do this, yeah, you might have some nausea, take it with food, don't drink any alcohol where you're on that, they feel like they did their job, walk out. What they failed to tell you is that one course of antibiotics in a given year will increase your risk of major depression in the next 12 months by 24%. If you go back to that same doctor in six or eight months, because now you have a bronchitis or whatever you didn't have before, and they slap down a Z-Pack or whatever it is for you, two courses of antibiotics in a year, and you have a 54% increase in major depression in the next year. You have a 44% increase in having a generalized anxiety disorder set in from two courses of antibiotics. 
as you lose the workforce and you send a stress signal down through 2 million genes and all of the microRNA that would support those, the stress signal that comes out of that damaged microbiome is enough to induce major depression and anxiety disorders. Panic attack. Parasites. We're told to just fear these guys, right? There's 300,000 species of parasites that we're aware of. We're probably not even done counting those, but 300,000 species of parasites. There's these weird little worms that have to live under your eyelids or you're going to get eye disease. We think of parasites as these enemies, but they're weird little scary things. Type in eyelid worm. It's creepy on Google. And let's check out the Google images on that one. So many weird creatures that live within you. It looks like a coral reef with like sea cucumbers and scary looking tubular things and all this living within your systems. They have two billion genes to your 20,000. Two billion genes. What proteins and enzymes are being done there? We haven't even gotten into understanding how much work is being done by these other species outside of the bacteria. But even if we just stop at the bacteria, we've come to terms with the reality that 90% of the enzymatic work done in a human body is being done by bacteria, not human cells. And so again, there's this temptation to get your 23andMe, your decode your human genome and think, ah, that's me. Oh, I have these gene defects and you know, these pathways, and you'll be overwhelmed by data, and it will sound super intense, and like, ah, oh, man, I'm stuck with this pathway, and no wonder I'm chronically fatigued, and blah, blah, blah. That has nothing to do with your MTHFR. You haven't slept for six hours straight for almost 52 years. Like, you just are sleep-deprived. Sometimes it's so obvious, and yet we're so tempted to bl- blame those few human genes. We need to be liberated of our concept of the human experience. We are a living garden that is dwarfed in the genomics and in the workload that's done by this incredible microbiome around us. We don't have to be well in and of ourselves as long as we're connected to Mother Earth. She will nurture us into the thrive state that we would dream of. We're all here despite the coronavirus. I love that. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for saying, I'm, I'm bigger than that. I'm bolder than that. I'm going to come into community. We're going to get to the viruses in a second, but first we have to stop at the fungi at 5 million species. We always feel really good when there's like four or six species of, of mushrooms in the, in the grocery store, right? It's like, oh, wow, turkey tail. This is going to be, I'm definitely going to have to spend like $300 at the checkout on this grocery store. And you see a lion's mane, you're like, whoa, that's such a trippy looking mushroom. Imagine the other five million. (laughs) We don't even comprehend. We can't even fathom the beauty of this microbial invisible world around us. We're now realizing that the human brain is full of microbiome. Every organ system in the body having its own organic garden. In in, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, women who've got this condition lose a very specific portion of their temporal lobe around where, where memory processing happens. If you section that portion of the brain in these, uh, these women with Alzheimer's and then stain it for Candida glabrata, which is a, a very famous yeast form, this Candida, 
many of you have been told you have candida because you had an antibiotic and then you get candida and all of this stuff. And we think candida is this terrible thing. In that brain of the Alzheimer's woman, candida shows up not as a yeast. Instead, it sprouts a mycelial form. Fungi are so cool, they can show up as as, as the yeast form, they can show up as uh, mycelial forms, fruiting forms, all kinds of different forms. But they, they form mycelial networks around the damaged portion of the woman's brain. And those mycelial networks look a hell of a lot like the neurologic connections that had just years before been intact. And so it's such a beautiful thing to realize that the microbiome, when it starts to see damage, will rush in to try to support the last moment human consciousness even. Isn't that trippy that candida glabrata could become a support system to something as complex as the human brain? I love that. I love the intelligence of the microbiome. I love the intelligence of Mother Nature that would say, oh, we could create a brain out of just these fungal elements. We could passage information. We could passage resources through these fungal environments. 125 trillion genes for those fungi. Ah, the species of the viruses. We have no idea. Because we've now hit 10 to the 31 viruses on Earth. We don't know how many species are within that. But 10 to the 31 is a very large number. That's a lot of zeros. And that number is still rising, partly because we haven't even started to be able to decode all of this and really figure it out. But even more intensely, it's, they're always swapping genomics. That's how a virus works, is it inserts RNA or DNA into a, a complex human cell or pig or a chicken or whatever it's infecting, and then it, that produces a billions and billions of that virus out of the human cell. The human cell is producing the virus. Viruses don't reproduce. Isn't that weird? Viruses produce themselves through the human machinery or through the pig machinery. They need a multicellular organism to produce themselves. And so if you really think about why multicellular organisms showed up on Earth, it was in part to do this magical dance with the virome. Viruses need us as much as we need them. We're starting to come to terms with the fact that viruses, like the candida glabrata in the brain of an Alzheimer's woman, the viruses are there to do genomic swapping so that there can be rapid shifts in the genome to figure out how to respond to stress. If something comes and wipes out your crop, an adaptation event needs to happen. And the adaptation is always going to happen through the interaction of viruses, bacteria, fungi, and this complex web of life. And they're going to find a new pathway to overcome the toxicity that was just created on your farm or elsewhere. The viruses are the most plastic of all of us. They are so clever at the speed at which they can differentiate DNA injection, RNA injection, and try a million different variants until they find the right pathway and they shift us as much as they seem to be shifted by us. And so we're very excited, I think, as scientists to start to realize that the human biology has been erroneously thought of as very microscopic. We have totally underestimated the human capacity because we've studied cardiovascular disease, cancer, all of this into oblivion in the context of sterile Petri dishes. My cancer research was always done in a sterile Petri dish. And so interestingly, I have no clue what cancer cells do in the context of a complex soil or gut microbiome. 
No idea what would happen. Until we start to tease things out in these recent years, we, we just thought of ourselves as isolated species, either having health or disease. If we're right that the microbiome is really at the root of all disease, then we should see not only a correlation between depression and antibiotics, we should see it with cancer. And so here in this screen, that's what you see. On the left, you see the bright red states in the U.S. are our highest cancer death states. And in the blue, from a New England Journal of Medicine article the same year as the cancer map was produced, you see the rates of antibiotic prescriptions. And what you're seeing is the darker the state, the more antibiotics are prescribed. It's a pretty gross amount. In those darkest states, we are prescribing between 890 and 1,200 prescriptions for every 1,000 man, woman, and child. And so, on average, more than one prescription for every human being in those states per year. In those states, if you look across to the cancer death map, you realize there is a state-by-state correlation. The more antibiotics prescribed, the more people die from cancer. And it goes out throughout the, the Midwest there and up into the East Coast, and you see this extraordinary pattern. Interestingly, the rates of antibiotic usage have not changed over a long period of time. In the U.S., we've been frozen at about 7.7 million pounds of antibiotic prescribed per year for the last 20 years. That, again, equates to, on average, about 830 prescriptions across the whole country for every 1,000 persons. But it plateaued, probably because it's impossible to get more antibiotics into the hands of human beings than we've already achieved. But interestingly, that cancer map has changed radically. The cancer mortality by state before and after 1996 changed radically. And so on, on the left, you're seeing 1970-1994, and this has been our long-term cancer maps. It's always been northeast dominant. That's uh, looking at uh, colon cancer, uh, breast cancer, lung cancer, all of those following that northeast pattern. The only exception to that was prostate cancer, which is there towards the right, where you're seeing that big uh, northwest dominance there. And so prostate cancer was northeast and northwest, but nothing was in the south. The south was never the epicenter of cancer in the United States until something happened between 1994 and 2007. Such a a remarkable thing, because cancer went up across the whole country, but there was something catastrophic that happened in the south. Something radically changed the population patterns of cancer in the United States, which, if it was a genetic disease, would be impossible. We're the melting pot of the world. We have genetics from all over the world. This is some of the most diverse uh, populations on the planet, and yet those genomes changed. Those genomes got stressed. Those genomes manifested cancer in a profound way. There is no way this is a genetic disease if we can, in just 13 years, completely change the pattern of cancer in the United States. The most abundant antibiotic on earth is what we needed to uncover to start to understand that. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in our herbicides now. Roundup made it famous, but in 2007 it came off patent, and now it's used in almost every herbicide on the planet. And interestingly, it functions as a potent antibiotic for the microbial life, whether that microbial life be in the soil or the human gut. This happens to be a water-soluble toxin. That's a bad idea for toxins because we can't sequester it away in nature well. Fat-soluble toxins, which is what nature likes to do, is pretty smart because then the toxin can be removed from our water system of the soil, rivers, 
plants that are 70% water, humans that are 70% water, all of us consumers as animals or otherwise, all about 70, 75% water. And so the toxin can be removed from there if it's fat soluble. But in a water soluble toxin, it gets system wide. Not just human body system wide, but universally system wide because the planet is covered in 70% water. And we get that into the air through evaporation and then rain and the whole pattern. This glyphosate, through the delivery of Roundup, really started to hit in 1992. In the United States, is the first year that we started using it as a desiccant or a drying agent instead of just a weed killer. So we started spraying crops for the first time in the United States in 1992. We'd been using it as a weed killer previous to this, but now we're spraying our food directly with it. And interestingly, in the U.S., this really started with wheat. So in 1992, we started spraying wheat to dry it faster so that it could be harvested quicker, maybe perhaps even get an extra uh, uh, crop into the ground in the year, or in those northern climates, you can get it out of the uh, get it harvested before the, the fall rains and snow comes. So that desiccation starts. Then, of course, in 1996, we genetically modified corn, soybean, and many other crops to be able to be sprayed directly with Roundup. So between 1992, 96, and then, of course, 2006 and beyond, we started to saturate the Western food system with this chemical, which, of course, is an antibiotic, as mentioned. It was supposed to correlate perfectly with the states uh, there and uh, that were, had the high death rate, but it didn't. There was a, a, seemed to be a disconnect where the cancer should have been most dominant in the northern parts of the Midwest within the U.S., but we saw this massive dominance in the south. And the answer or the solution to that, that lack of correlation came when I found this map of the Mississippi tributaries. The Mississippi River is the largest river system in the United States, and you can see that it runs throughout the northern portions of the whole middle of the country and then runs down into a single river, which finishes in the last 90 miles between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, Louisiana. That last 90 miles of the Mississippi River is right in the center of all that red action in the cancer death map, and it turns out that is now called Cancer Alley, that 90 miles. It's the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world. Many of these people are in their third, fourth cancers. They survived breast cancer, then got colon cancer, survived that, and now have a weird lung cancer. They got leukemia, they got over that, and now they've got colon cancer, they've got breast cancer, and it keeps mounting. When you come to terms with the fact that we've sprayed a water-soluble toxin into the soils, that it gets whisked away with the first rain or watering, and it goes right into the closest freshwater system, you start to come to terms with what we've done to, to Mother Earth in our country, the United States. And I'm so excited to be here in Australia because I feel like you guys are, are a little bit younger in this damage. You're about 10 years behind where the United States is with the problem. But the problems are here, and they're very visible. And the time is right now to make these radical changes, because I'll show you in a bit about those water systems and where it's gone. But first, I want to show you this GMO crop list. These are the genetically modified organisms that can now be sprayed directly with Roundup. You think of things like sure alfalfa, and yes, the apples, and of course, strawberries on the list. But sugar cane and sugar beets are one of our main problems in the United States. Tobacco's on there. But look at some of these weird ones. It's not just corn, soybean, wheat. We've got petunias on this list. We have roses on this list. 
We've genetically modified flowers to be directly sprayed with Roundup. And ironically, I wasn't actually invited down to MD Anderson by the doctors to speak on cancer and what we're doing. I was invited there by the groundskeepers. I was invited there because one of the head groundskeepers had heard one of my lectures some years before and realized, to his horror, what he was doing. They were growing these massive, beautiful rose beds because they had committed as a landscaping team that they were going to be the first hospital in the United States to deliver a fresh-cut rose to every single patient every single day. Only to find out that he was delivering carcinogen into every room with every rose of genetically modified roses that were sprayed not just with Roundup, of course, the amount of complexity of the the toxic stew that gets dumped into the flower industry is truly amazing. Each kid, each adult being given that rose every day, and you start to realize, and so he realized what was happening, and he invited me down there to tour the 600 acres that is the MD Anderson campus because they wanted to show me that they had gotten it 98% chemical-free. In just a single year and a half, they had completely eliminated the chemical dependence in the landscaping. And in that journey with them, I came to this beautiful realization that those lands- that landscaping team has done more to prevent cancer in Texas than any doctor in those towers. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it beautiful that the one that would have his feet and hands in the soil would have the opportunity to change the environment the most? So I get excited that this list, every, every one of these you know, 30 items here that have been genetically modified, gives us another lever to push on to change the mistakes we've made and to find a more regenerative and more hopeful pattern to all of this. That was Breathe Your Biome by Zach Bush and Joost Becker. Anything But Square is released every Wednesday. To stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter on fedsquare.com and browse our virtual square with plenty on offer from us and our partners, including NGV Australia, ACME, the Koori Heritage Trust and more. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday.